0: Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. Today James begins a new series as a hiatus to consider some of the creeds and doctrines of Roman Catholicism and how and why the Protestant Reformation began and continues. Today we discuss the sacraments. You can find more information about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org or you can view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to edify the church. <clears throat> All right. So today we're actually going to start a brief hiatus. We're going to have five, possibly six parts in this today. Again, we are considering Roman Catholicism as it compares to the Protestant church. However, briefly, let me just say that one of the difficulties with doing this is that there's a variety of views, even within the Protestant church, so some of this might be more universally applied and some of this might be particular but we'll we'll get into that when it's applicable Um, sometimes basically we'll pick and choose when we do that however today we are going to consider the sacraments save the lord's supper since next week we are going to consider the lord's supper the eucharist we're going to hold that off until next week so we'll we'll talk about the six other sacraments that Rome sees sacraments, one of which is baptism, which we also um, consider a true sacrament given by Christ. We'll go into next week, we'll consider scripture and tradition. So how the Roman church sees tradition, and the scriptures, but specifically how they they apply their traditions as well. We'll consider the papal infallibility, Uh, we'll consider the ecclesiology of the church, but also how it defines salvation or justification we'll get into that a little bit today uh, but we'll we'll hold off on that for that particular message and then the last and certainly not least mariology so mary's function and you know efficacy within the roman church and how the roman church sees the virgin mary and and that'll take some time that might be a two-parter but today like i said we are going to consider the sacraments and again baptism is something we are going to be somewhat brief about today I mean we're gonna our, our you know second message is gonna be about baptism as well however we can have a whole series on the bapt- on baptism so some of this is gonna have to wait as well as the Lord's Supper I mean next week God willing we will consider the Lord's Supper prior to with the second message which will have to do with the Lord's Supper as well but there's much controversy uh, in particular with, with the Lord's Supper. Now, the two biggest points of controversy in the sacraments, the two sacraments that <coughs> pretty much led into the Reformation were the sacraments of penance and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So again, we're going to spend more time with penance. Some of these we're going to somewhat breeze through. We'll take some time with baptism, and we'll take, take much time with penance. And then, God willing, next week we'll... We'll Consider the Lord's Supper even more. Okay, so the four basic differences we'll see applied throughout this series, it, well, it, in particular, how it applies to the sacraments, are the difference in number. Okay, I mean, obviously, they, see, they have seven, whereas the Protestant church has two. Uh, the nature and func- you know, the nature of the sacraments and the efficacy so, what they do, what they accomplish, their function, and the mode. And the, remember, we talked about operato, the working of the work. So this is the mode by which these sacraments are applied, and we'll get into this more more specifically. But what this basically means, this may be the most significant difference, as according to this view, the sacraments automatically convey grace to the receiver. So that word automatic is a is a theological term that basically the 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 efficacy the 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 usage of the sacrament. The sacrament itself conveys the grace that is supposed to be symbolized where the Protestant church sees it symbolizing and not merely symbolizing again, which we'll consider today. However, the sacrament itself has the power to give these things. Again, we'll, we'll see that more as we go along. Now, remember we also talked about this the word sacrament comes from the latin word sacramentum which it, which when translated basically means a sacred oath which is kind of wonderful it's really nice uh, but it's derived from the greek word mysterion remember you can also transliterate, transliterate this with a u because in the greek it is mysterion, um which means mystery and we'll talk about that somewhat briefly in our next message Mystery, interestingly in the Bible, never refers to a sacrament. There, there are these occasions, there's one in particular that might lead into that, and that's the one we're going to consider today, uh, you know, again, in our second message. But interestingly, so the reason, how this happened historically, though, was that the Catholic Church sp- spoke of the sacraments as holy mysteries. So that's kind of how, you know, they took the, the, the Catholic Church, translated the bible into latin it's a latin vulgate and so most of all of the scriptures are in Latin. all of the councils all of the um, encyclicals and so forth are written in latin except for a few more modern times another thing i want to say is uh, the term catholic merely means universal so before the reformation even augustine refers to the catholic church because it's the tr- it basically sing- symbolizes, it's a term for the true church, the universal church. And I wish we still had this. I mean, part of me kind of laments the fact that we're still calling ourselves Protestant and Reformed because that, that necessitates a referential point of the Roman church. Whereas really, we're Catholic in the sense that we derive our faith based on the authority of Scripture. Christ alone and all the solas, remember? So, unfortunately, you know, this has landed and remained with the Roman church, whereas I see it actually applicable to the true visible church and the invisible church. More specifically, the invisible church, the true wheat, okay? But, you know, again, it's just a... The difference in terms all right so why seven why did they see seven okay now the number of seven was fixed by rome at the second council of leon it's leon not Lyon, in 1274 the council of florence and you know in the fifth, 15th century and the council of trent in the 16th century the council of trent was in response to the reformation we're gonna have to remember that because throughout this series. When we talk about most of the councils, it will be the Council of Trent. This was a hot-button, controversial situation, okay? However, as, as early as the 13th century, the number was fixed at 7. It was fixed at 7 before that, but you know, that was the first council that, that engraved it in you know, pages and so forth. The reason for seven was seen as analogous to the medieval concept of the seven stages of life, which we'll see. Okay, so the first one is baptism. You know, that's the first rite. And just so you know, when I speak of rites, it's R-I-T-E. I I should have made that clear last week, but it's R-I-T-E. So basically, it's a ceremonial function. It's a rite, like circumcision was a rite of justification or being part of the people. It's a right that you had to perform. Some have thought the seven sacraments were in terms of the four dimensions of earth and three dimensions of heaven, but that idea has never been a part of the Catholic church de fide. Basically, they've never defined it that way, but just some people assume that could be one of the reasons. Seven, but historically, it's always been because it's analogous to the seven stages of life, which we'll see as we go through the sacraments. Okay. So these are the seven sacraments as we as I briefly mentioned last week, but this is written down for you. So baptism, this is a sacrament for the initial stage of life or the initial stage of belief. Even when a person be- believes and goes into the Catholic Church at a later age, they are baptized. So this is the first sacrament. For the Christian pilgrimage. And just so you know, the Reformers also believe in this. You know, you're supposed to get baptized before you can even take communion, before you can become a member of the church, and so forth. So, baptism is supposed to be the first plank, so to speak. We'll, we'll speak of these planks that a Christian must walk when they're saved. Okay, the second one for the Catholic Church again, baptism and the Lord's Supper are really the only ones that we share with the Catholic Church. It's seen in completely different ways. However, these are the only two that the Reformers see as legitimate sacraments because they came from the Lord Himself, Christ. So the second one would be confirmation, the transition from childhood to young adulthood. And we'll get into this more, you know, in more detail here shortly. But again, we're really going to spend most time today with the baptism and penance. So the uh, the uh, third sacrament in the stages of life. So these first four are basically the stages of life. So is matrimony or marriage. And the last rite in the life stage anyway is extreme unction or last rites. But we'll also talk about that. Uh, now, in addition to these is holy orders or ordination for the for those entering into a special ministry, and we'll we'll spend some time here because the priests are given powers in this in this ordination, two of which are their main powers, absolution and consecration, which again we'll get into here briefly. And penance, this gives assistance for all of life after baptism. Again, we'll 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 get into this and the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. The Catholic Church ref- considers the Lord's Supper as superseding all of the other sacraments. It's the most important one. And again, this is partly why I want to spend more time on this next week, just specifically for this one. Also, as it applies to the Lutheran Church and the Anglican Church, okay? So, we'll talk about that somewhat briefly next week as well. But these are basically these are the seven sacraments that the church, the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church has seen established as early as the 13th century, okay? So the first one, well, so the first one is baptism. Remember, this is applied ex opere operato. So the grace conveyed by baptism is regeneration. So regeneration, so you're born again when you're baptized, even as an infant, even as an infant. This is a huge cause of debate. And I think this is what led into, it seems like, this is what led into the Baptist movement or the Anabaptist movement. These, th- Those denominations have rejected infant baptism, whole cloth. Now, the Baptists won't find it necessary to baptize you again. One baptism is sufficient, okay? So, so there's much to be considered with that. However, the Anabaptists will baptize you again because they see... The infant baptism is not applicable. It's not true. It's not a true baptism. So you have pedo baptism, that's the belief in infant baptism, which historically has been the the mainline, mainstream view of, of, inf- of baptism. It's fine to give an infant baptism. And credo baptism, and that's a believer's baptism. Again, we'll talk more about that our next message now this means that a baptism a person is saved or reborn and thus justified in the sight of God so again in other words where the reformers see it literally coming in the stages of belief when Christ gives you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and minds and souls given over to loving him that only comes by the power of the Spirit and that is true regeneration So, baptism symbolizes that regeneration. Again, we'll get into this in our next message. So, righteousness, according to the Catholic Church, this is essential. Righteousness is infused or poured into the soul. Okay, now, whereas, remember, in Protestant theology, so, therefore, Rome teaches that the uh, prerequisite for justification, this is the instrumental cause, is baptism. The Catholic Church uses many terms, many Aristotelian terms. They don't really take from the philosophy of of Aristotle, but we will see this very much next week in the Lord's Supper. So I want us to kind of recognize this. We'll we'll introduce form and matter today, however, as well. But it's important that we see at the outset that this is kind of an Aristotelian. But again, he didn't invent this he just kind of realized this and so the instrumental cause for the roman church is baptism this justifies a person baptism justifies whereas in the protestant theology the instrumental cause is faith sola fide we are justified by faith and faith alone and we are imputed with the uh, we are or we are credited or reckoned with the righteousness of christ right we impute our sins upon him on the cross And he imputes his righteousness to us, right? Do we we all recognize that? We all remember that, okay? Right? Right? Okay. But that's an important difference. So in other words, in, in the Roman church, the infusion of righteousness gives a person true righteousness. However, while according to this view, baptism cleanses one from the power and guilt of original sin by infusion... It does not leave them perfectly sanctified. Okay, so that nature of sin that is left over, as it were, is called concupiscence. You know, whether you remember these terms or not is somewhat inconsequential. Just remember the the ideas, okay? So concupiscence, as defined by the Roman church, is an inclination or disposition towards sin, but not a sin itself so it kind of inclines one to sin it's a disposition towards sin but it's not a sin itself by contrast protestantism argues that any inclination or disposition towards sin is sin again we are sinful by nature even if we don't act out a sin even when you're tempted with a sin is a sin if you go back to the garden of eden eve's first sin was even considering the tempter's temptation, the, the serpent's temptation, okay? That's sin in and of itself. So, as Protestants, Augustine came up with the term, we are simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously just, so we are justified, while at the same time sinners. That is the, that is the believer's pilgrimage, okay? We do seek, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ that's through sanctification okay but again in the Roman church which is what we're talking about mostly now they are infused with righteousness however what is left over is concupiscence which is an inclination or a disposition towards sin again we''ll we'll, we'll talk about that somewhat briefly according to Rome sins committed after baptism, Especially mortal sins, and we'll talk about that, destroy the justifying grace of baptism, making it necessary to be just justified again, typically through penance, which again, we're going to spend most of the time talking about. Mortal sin completely destroys the justification of a believer, and, and we'll, we'll wait to talk about that. So The sacrament of penance is designed to solve this problem. However, if a person dies after committing mortal sin without penance, they go straight to hell. They go to hell, not purgatory, which we'll talk about. We'll talk about purgatory here shortly as well, as they have lost the grace of justification. If you commit mortal sin in the Roman church and you do not you know, practice the sacrament of penance, then you go to hell, not purgatory, you go to hell. You're, you have lost your justification. And again, this is because it's an infusion of righteousness and not a trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. Okay. Rome. Now, the confirmation, the next sacrament we we were considering is confirmation. Rome does not consider confirmation as a new infusion of grace. This basically strengthens the grace, the justifying grace given at baptism. Okay. Now, and obviously, because confirmation to confirm something connotes or you know suggests something that came before. You can't confirm something without it proceeding. Does that make sense? you only confirmed that which something that which had already preceded it so confirmation basically strengthens undergirds and moves the grace given at bat- baptism toward maturity okay Confirmation is ministered at the age of discretion. Typically, and mo- historically, it's mostly been at the age of seven, but that's not concrete, okay, N- just just so you know. I mean, it's mostly at the age of seven, but this is the age of discretion where, where the, the the child is at such an age to actually believe and acquiesce to the doctrines of the church, of scripture, and Christ himself, okay. Okay. Typically administered by a bishop with oil, signifying the Holy Spirit and the laying on of hands. Okay, so this is is basically the matter of the sacrament. And again, we'll talk about form and matter. Matrimony. The infusion of grace given by God to strengthen, this is to strengthen the union of a man and a woman. So much less than basically promises given and so forth. This is to strengthen a man and a woman for the mystical union of marriage. Protestants don't have any problem with the with, with the belief in matrimony doing that we just don't believe it's a sacrament specifically for different reasons, for many reasons, specifically because it wasn't ordained by Christ himself. you know it is found in the pages of of Genesis, of Genesis and is throughout the Bible, however not as a sacrament or as, not as a rite, whereas circumcision was, okay so, It's just basically d change in definition. However, they see it very similarly as the Protestants. Okay, and last of all, through the stages of life, anyway, for you know the laity, the laity believer, is extreme unction or last rites, okay. So this is based on an exhortation given in the book of James, which we talked about. But basically, it's James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. This is the King James Version because the King James Version is historically considered the authorized English version. And we'll get into the history of scripture another time, God willing. However, that's why I use the King James for this particular study. So it was originally seen as a healing rite, not as a last rite. And I'm sure I have it in here, but oh, here, yeah. Recently, Rome has reemphasized that it is a gift of grace to be used anytime a person is seriously ill, not merely to prepare them for death. Okay, so recently, they've actually returned and re-emphasized the fact that it's, it's for the purpose of praying for anybody who's seriously sick, not just for those who are approaching death. You know, for the longest time, it's been seen as just the last rites before a person dies. Basically, to make sure that they have gained enough merit, that they do the sacrament of penance enough to gain enough merit to enter heaven. And again, we will, we will consider merit and so forth. Here shortly. However, its primary use is a fi- uh, is a final anointing of grace to strengthen penance, lest lest one dies with mortal sin. It is administered by a priest who applies oil that has been consecrated and blessed by a bishop to the forehead, usually in the shape of a cross, and to the hands while praying. Okay, so this is a distinction between form and matter. So the form is the priest praying and consecrating the oil, and the matter is the oil itself, and that symbolizes the Holy Spirit, but the form is the priest basically consecrated, well, it's consecrated by a bishop, but praying for the person, and doing the act of penance, and absolution, okay, which again, now that we're past these, we'll get into more detail with (laughs) with what I'm talking about, so holy orders, this is ordination into the priesthood, bishops, or ordained and so forth. The ordination of a bishop, priest, or deacon. The infusion of grace is special powers to those ordained. The two main powers given to the priest are absolution and consecration. Absolution is the power to forgive sins as part of penance, allowing the recipient to receive sacraments without sin. So you have to go through, the, if, you, if you commit a mortal sin, you must go through penance before you can receive any other sacrament, including the Lord's Supper. So absolution, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into this actually, so let's just wait. Consecration, this is going to have to wait till next week, so I'll talk about this a little bit more just now. Consecration is the act by which the bread and wine used in the Lord's Supper are set apart, and according to the Roman Catholic belief, literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Now, the priest do, does this by the prayer of consecration, or the words of institution. And, and that's why, I don't know, you know, I'm sure some of us have been in Roman Catholic churches very, or at some point, there's much genuflection. You know, when you enter the church first, you get on your knees before you get into the pews, you get onto your knees, and you worship the host. It's called the ark, but the host, who, which truly they see as the true body and blood of Christ. And sometimes it's carried And it's called the altar okay now that's why you see so much genuflection so much you know so many of them on their knees so often because they see truly the and that's why it's called the miracle of the mass it's the miracle of the mass because literally the bread and the wine substantially transforms into the body and blood of christ the accidents remain so it still remains bread and and uh, and wine. However, the substantive change, and again, we're just gonna have to wait until next week to talk more about this. But the accidents are basically the, the perceivable things. You know, like when I see that chair, I see I see you know woodiness, I see brown, and so forth. But the isness of the church, the substance of the church, I can't see. Chairness. That kind of a thing. Again, we'll, we'll wait for that next week, God willing. But these are the two powers. These are the two main powers. These are the, str- the greatest powers that the priest is given with holy orders or ordination. This is accomplished by the priest speaking the words of institution. That's what I was calling. And now Luther, Luther was an Augustinian monk. Okay, And so when he was ordained at his first mass, he froze. He froze. He couldn't speak. He, he, he literally froze. At, you know, they don't call it a pulpit. But when he pr- first gave the prayer of consecration, he was overwhelmed with this new power to truly transform the substance from bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He froze, much to the embarrassment of the congregation. And his father was likely there and there's a history there his father had paid for him to go to law school however luther was in this huge storm this huge thunderstorm and lightning was you know striking all around him and so he prayed i think it was to saint anna or saint Anne, that basically god if you save me if you keep me safe i'll become a monk and that's what happened so he became a monk much to the chagrin of his father however that's what happened praise god all right. So, penance. Okay. Now, this is crucial to the division between Catholicism and Protestantism, as it touches on two central issues of the debate. Justification, specifically, and more broadly, the issue of merit and grace. And we'll talk about that shortly. But this is truly the eye of the storm. This is what began the Reformation. And we'll talk about kind of how it started towards the end of this. However, this is really what sparked the the controversy. This is what sparked the Protestant Reformation, and this is partly why it continues. Okay, Luther's response to the... Okay, so Erasmus, a theologian, a Catholic theologian at this time, at that time, had written a book called The Diatribe. Okay, and Luther, responding to it, the bondage of the will, at the end of it, at the end of the book, he thanked Erasmus for not bringing up, you know, tw- you know, silly circumstances, silly doctrinal issues like the infallibility of the pope and mariology. These are things that we can we can discuss, you know, these are the th- these are things we can debate or the authority of scripture. Now now we don't give it over to them. However, these are at least things that we can debate. But you really you're you're introducing, you're talking about the heart of the issue because justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. Justification by faith and faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. In other words, well, let's wait for that when we consider merit, okay? So, penance was instituted to help those who commit mortal sin. Again, those who have made shipwreck of their faith and that's what we're going to talk about. So the second plank of justification in addition to baptism is for those who have made shipwreck of their faith that's from canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, 6th session chapter 14. The form of penance is absolution. So again we're returning to form and matter. There are three different basic matters, uh, but the form of penance is absolution. So I'm sure you've heard the Latin term mea culpa that just means I'm guilty and then the the priest says te absolvo you you know i absolve you of your sins and now this is frequently misunderstood in protestant circles so you get and i know i was guilty of this early on before i knew anything but you know you get enough protestants around and you ask them what are the what's the main difference between what are we what are we remonstrating from what are we protesting and they will say basically some of the effect of well I don't need to go confess my sins to a priest and who does this priest think he is to absolve my sins I'm my sins are absolved by Christ and Christ alone however in the Protestant church and in the Bible it's always encouraging us to confess our sins one to another and the the, the pastor, as it were, the preacher will typically at the at the time of confession or at the time of of accepting or or surrendering to Jesus Christ at the point of salvation, they will give you the assurance given by Scripture. Basically, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's the same thing. It's absolution and confession. Okay. Now the three different matters of Penance basically has three different dimensions. So, again, absolution is from the priest. From the penitent believer, the one who is confessing, it's contrition. We've talked about contrition, and we're going to talk about it more. Confession and satisfaction. Okay, okay, let's just talk about this, and we'll get into this. So the Roman Catholic prayer of contrition, this is what you say when you are confessing to the priest in, you know, in the confessional. Um, O my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because, because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love, I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and to amend my life. Amen. Now, there's only one part of attrition. Remember, contrition is the true repentance. It's truly being sorry, in this case, for ever having offended God. And this is a great prayer of contrition. Save this part, uh, because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. However, it goes on to say, but most of all, because they offend thee. This is wonderful. Again, you know, I just want to be fair to the Catholic Church. I mean, the Protestant Church has a tendency to see these things far too simplistically and just think that they're wrong about everything. This is a fantastic prayer. If you are going before another man or before a preacher or before somebody else to confess your sins one to an, one to another, this is a great confession. This is this is a this is a faithful confession. So, confession is obviously confessing one's sins. So, this is the contrition and this is the confession. So, the form of absolution from the priest like we already established because it also is given in the reformed church the reformed church shouldn't have a problem with so we should have no issue with contrition and confession or absolution the issue is the third dimension of satisfaction so the issue is not in the form but in the matter it's the the part of satisfaction so for penance to be complete it is necessary for the penitent believer to do works of satisfaction which satisfy the demands of god's justice okay this is this is essential this is crucial again this is the eye of the storm this is part of the eye of the storm so these works may be very small like maybe say 5 hail marys it's a prayer to the virgin mary or 5 well, my Father's, which is the Lord's Prayer, obviously. So it's the, the Hail Marys are a prayer asking for the intercession of the Virgin Mary, which we'll get into in, in our discussion, in our consideration of Mary. So if the moral sin was severe, they may be required to make a pilgrimage. So you know, if, it's, if it's just slight or you know, a smaller in degree sin, then you might just have to say a few Hail Marys or Our Father's. Uh, However, if it's more grievous, then you might have to make a pilgrimage, typically to Rome. However, the most, the the favorite method has been giving, the giving of alms. Okay, now we'll get into this more uh, here in just a second. So, with penance, what penance is designed to do is to, to increase your merit before God. Again, this is the infusion of righteousness in the believer. So, unless one has sufficient merit in and of their, themselves, in and of ourselves, we cannot enter heaven. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about this. But there are two basic different types of, uh, of merit. There's meritum de congruo, which is congruous merit. Okay, so these are basi- this is basically a merit fitting or congruous for God to reward it. Okay, so it, it would be fitting for him to reward because he's good, he's just, it would be fitting. But he doesn't have to. That's basically what it's saying. It would be fitting, uh, according to his nature. The second one is meritum de condigno. Uh, So this is condign merit. So meritorious that God must reward it. Okay? So you have condign merit and you have congruous merit. Okay? Without true merit from the penitent sinner, no matter how much trust and faith he has, or they have, in Jesus Christ, in the atonement of Jesus Christ, they are not justified they cannot be justified without this uh, sufficient merit they must do the works of satisfaction in order to gain sufficient merit so now almost any time a theological controversy erupts it usually stems from a practice it begins with a practice okay and what happens is not the not the practice itself is seen as the problem, but the theological underpinnings, basically, the <laughs> theological implications coming from the practice that is being done. So in other words, baptism or even the Lord's Supper, it's not the practice of performing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but it's how it's practiced in the Roman church that caused the, the, the controversy, the protests. So the debate, the debate over the, pra, the practice, usually gives way to debate over the theological. implications. that's what I already said. So in the case of the Reformation, it was the works of satisfaction and alms giving through the sale of indulgences. Indulgences is basically a transfer of merit. Okay. And now briefly, I don't know if I have this. So the, the Pope is seen as having the keys in Mark's gospel at the end toward the end anyway in chapter 16 verses 17 through 19 this is when uh, peter confessed you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus christ says blessed are you simon bar jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and i also say to you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is why Rome rome basically sees the keys being given over to Peter, and then the, the, the Pope is basically a successor of Peter. There's nothing biblical about that, but we will have to wait until we talk about papal infallibility to really get into that more specifically. But, but really, the, the right... Interpretation of that is the confession that he is the the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and upon this rock. So the church does have the keys to bind and to loose. Okay, that's essential to recognize. However, in the Roman Church, the the Pope in his encyclicals, but this is he was he would give a papal indulgence, okay, for the people, for just in another an alternative form of almsgiving for the sacrament of penance. Okay, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this um, somewhat briefly. So again, to gain heaven, uh, a person must have sufficient merit. A believer without sufficient merit goes to... So a believer without sufficient merit, not one that has performed mortal sin and did not do the acts of penance, but anytime a believer is without sufficient merit, they go to purgatory. Now, purgatory is not hell. It's not hell. It's actually a loving compassionate, sanctifying place for a believer until they can muster up, until they gain enough merit to enter heaven. A person might spend five days in purgatory. They might spend five million years in purgatory. Incidentally, the medieval theologians would actually calculate this, you know, based on how many, you know, how many indulgences they paid for, how many how much merit they applied in their life, how much of a sinner they were and so forth, but they would calculate this, you know, so to speak. And, and, and at this time, the sale of indulgence was also to help your loved ones who are in purgatory to shorten their time in purgatory. Okay, because again, this gives you you know, more merit. So one might, okay, I already said that. Okay, the Roman Catholic Church came to believe it had the power to give merit to those who lacked it from and through the works of supererogation. Okay, works that are more meritorious than God requires. So, example, martyrdom or a sacrificial life, like Francis of Assisi, you know, a sacrificial or an ascetic life. These are so meritorious that they are above and beyond the merit necessary to enter heaven. Okay? The excess from these merits form a treasury of merit, from which the church may withdraw to give, to give an indulgence to a needy person in purgatory to shorten their time there. I ha- and I say it here, but I have to say, there's perhaps no more repugnant teaching in the Roman church than the treasury of merit. It's actually quite sad. Because we believe in a treasury of merit, a, a treasury that is inexhaustible and has no end, it, with, which is only filled by the merit of Christ, not the saints, not the saints. The church, the Roman church, since it has so much, so much power and the saints have so much power and you must have so much merit, now, so this is kind of an imputation of sorts, This is imputing the merit from the martyr or Francis of Assisi or whatever to the believer or for their family to spend less time in purgatory. It's an imputation from the saints, not of Christ. That's why this is a huge point of controversy. The reformer, the Protestant, weeps at the idea of the treasury of merit filled by the merits of the saints and not the merit of Christ. So, the issue in the indulgence and controversy is the sufficiency of Christ alone. Remember, solus Christus, to redeem a person. According to Protestantism, justification is based on Christ's merit credited or imputed to his people or reckoned to his people. There are many different words I wish to use, but we are more familiar with the imp- imputation. So, he imputes his merit to us. For Rome, we are never finally saved until we have sufficient merit of our own of our own so this is the infusion you know that righteousness is infused on us until we are righteous enough to enter heaven or meritorious enough early in the 16th century okay Uh, this is really where the controversy began early in the 16th century the roman church began plans to rebuild saint peter's basilica in rome okay now in 1517, Pope, Pope Leo X offered papal indulgences to those who gave alms for the Basilica project. Okay? And again, this is just an alternative to the alms giving for the act of penance. However, the church made it abundantly clear this wasn't supposed to be sold as like a raffle or some some silly fundraising situation. It was still for the act of penance. So one must confess their sins contritely to a priest, and this would be the work of satisfaction. This would be just an additional, you know, indulgence, sale of indulgence to acquire more merit for either themselves or one who is in purgatory. The church believed it was offering the faith, again, the faithful, an alternative form of giving as part of the works of satisfaction. Okay, finally. So... A man by the name of Johann Tetzel was going around Germany. He was a German-Dominican preacher. He began to sell indulgences without calling the people to, pe- to practice the sacrament of penance. So without calling the people to confess their sins. So he was just whimsically selling these things like he was getting a part of the deal. You know, like he was getting commission or something. And this was one of the huge reasons that Luther nailed his 95 Theses to All Saints Church. This was basically the bulletin board. Okay, so all the theologians, all the doctors of the church, so to speak, whenever they wanted to debate something, they would just nail it to that, that door. It was basically the bulletin board. However, the printing press had just kind of recently come out. And so many people, when they saw the 95 Theses, reprinted it and sent it everywhere. And that's kind of how this spark turned into a fire very quickly. A providential fire, I must say, but a fire nonetheless. This was a clear distortion or abrogation of the system of indulgences, and Rome acknowledges that to this day. They weren't fans of it then, and they're not fans of it now. Okay, again, just to be fair, this was ne- this was this was a distortion. Tetzel was going around Germany selling these things without calling the people to confess and that is apart from the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Luther challenged Tetzel, Tetzel on his sales of indulgency by calling attention to it through the 95 theses. He had other you know issues as well which we will discuss throughout this series. Okay papal infallibility the infallibility infallibility of the councils the infallibility of the church many different things the lord's supper the eucharist however luther did believe in transubstantiation so even the lutheran church still practice transubstantiation where you can consecrate the bread and the wine and it but it, they see it differently but it's still substantively the body and the blood of christ so his protest sparked a thorough examination of the merit system. Again, this was the practice that was being done. And in light of this practice, it sparked a huge examination of the merit system in light of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Sola Fide. Okay. So, do we all understand how and why the Protestant Reformation began? Specifically, with the, with the controversy of penance and the merit system, the treasury of merits, where we see necessarily, biblically, the merit of our righteousness, how we are justified in the sight of God, is by Christ and Christ alone. Not through an infusion, but an imputation. That, he, that when God the Father sees us, He sees Christ. He sees us with Christ. He can't see Christ without seeing us. He can't see us without seeing Christ. That is imputation. That is not infusion. This is essential. This, this, is, this, is, this is enough to never unite with the Roman Catholic Church. Sadly, sadly, many secondary doctrines are debatable. Justification... Is basically an eternal paradigm. If you are justified, if we are truly justified by the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone, then anybody who anybody who believes that they that their own merit will save them or part of their own merit. So maybe the efficacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and my works might save me are condemned. Those who believe in a merit-based system are condemned. We We are justified by Christ and Christ alone. That's why this is not a secondary doctrine. That's why this is not just merely two denominations at an impasse. This is one true church and one false church. And Lord, forgive me if that's an oversimplification, but it is not it's absolutely accurate this is the difference between the true church the true ecclesia in fact when he when luther was responding to erasmus he thanked him for talking to about considering the core ecclesia this is the heart of the church justification is the heart of the church again it's the article by which the church stands or falls false okay thank you for listening to sea of fire ministries we hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with god and we hope you join us again next week you have been listening to sea of fire ministries where the word of god is life